prayer before we get into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the privilege it is to be your church, your body, to be able to come together and, Lord, sing praises unto you that are not just mere words, they are theological truths. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we look upon Calvary's cross and it is a a wonderful mystery. Uh, Lord, that you would come and you would walk this earth and you would live a perfect life and turn your face towards Calvary's cross and suffer and die in our place. Lord, it is a mystery to us, but what a wonderful mystery it is. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that we have your revealed word this morning, that you haven't left us to flounder and flap, but you have given us your word, your instruction for life, everything that you want revealed to us is in here, Lord, and we thank you for that. So as we come to the time in our service where you speak to us through your word, we ask that you would do that very thing this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would use me. I confess, Lord, that I have nothing in myself, but everything I have is all of you, and I ask that you would use me. Lord, that in my weakness you would give me strength, and in my confusion you would give me clarity, that you would help me, Lord, to be a vehicle for you. And I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would move amongst us this morning and challenge us, uplift us, whatever it may be, Lord. Maybe we have come here this morning with a a heart of fear. Lord, help us to see this morning that it is a natural cause of the fall that we would have fear in our lives. But Lord, help us to use that fear to push us to you evermore, that our fear would indeed lead to faith. So Lord, I pray you would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the arguments for God, if you're, you know, in the apologetics or, you know, you want to discuss with anybody about the existence of God, there there are different arguments that that, that people will use. One of those is a teleological argument. And if you've ever looked at this, it's just a big word for really saying that if we see things that are created, they must have a designer. Design, designer. We see a building, we see a builder. And and that's the kind of uh, concept. The idea, it takes a purposer to have purpose. That's the idea behind it. So when we look at the, at the world, and it's very easy to look at the world as a born-again believer and see design and purpose everywhere, isn't it? Your eyes have been opened. But those that are not saved, their eyes have been blinded by the God of this world, and, and they just don't see it, even though it's all around calling out to the Creator God. But that's one of the arguments we can take, and we can point and say, look, you know, look at this. Go and watch this flower grow. Look, how, look at this animal and how it does what it does. Where, where does it get the information to do that? It's, it's clearly design, isn't it? So we, we use this argument a lot, and, and, and it applies to the whole universe, but it applies to, to God's people as well. That We look at our God, and we see our God as a purposeful God. He has a purpose in the things that he does. And as we look at the world, we recognize that God is sovereign. Part of that is realizing that, 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 that God is a purposeful God. He is a God of order. He's a God of purpose. That he has uh, not just left us to flounder in this world. That there is no accidents with God. Just divine appointments and everything that we go through. God has some purpose to either allow it or send it. That's the fact of a sovereign God. But you know, we, sometimes we don't say that or we don't get it. And we can get thrown and we can get tossed back and forth in the waves of fear that happens. We get anxious and, and whatever it may be. 
But we have to remember, as we go and witness to others, and we say, you know, God is a purposeful God, and creation cries out to the handiwork of God. He is the designer God. He is the creator God. He is the sovereign God. He is the purposeful God. And we go and tell people that, but then we get into our own lives and we forget that. We forget it. Now, when we get to Ezra chapter number 3, we're going to see these people. And they are in a place of fear. They're in a difficult situation. Trials and troubles are coming. But we want to see that their fear leads them to faith. And their faith is, is bolstered, if you like. It is, it is added to, it is built upon the, the relationship they have with God and his word and his instruction. You remember we talked about how the people were gathered as one last, last time around. The direction was to Jerusalem, they had the desire and they went about the, the business according to God's work, to worship God, God's way. This is a continuation of that, is what we're going to see, because you know, Ezra chapter 3, uh, verse 2, says that they uh, offered burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they got back to God's word and they started to do what God had commanded in Leviticus and because they had the Torah they had this they had the written instructions for God's worship and in Leviticus 23 you'll see this all the way through but one of the verses there is it opens up in Leviticus 23 you can turn there if you like Leviticus 23 verses 1 and 2 they had all the things to worship God they also had the feasts of God Leviticus 23 verses 1 to 2 Said, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, Concerning the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. And we'll have a little uh, look at these a little bit later on in the message. But what I want to say here as we start, the word for feast in Hebrew is modim. And it literally means appointed times. Appointed times. These are God's feasts. These are God's appointed times. And because God is behind these, if we take the teleological argument that God is a purposeful God and he's given them these feasts, he's called them his appointed times, that means he has a purpose in them and, and that purpose is to reveal something of his sovereignty or his character. There's something in there for people to take in these face, these appointed times. Because God has a purpose behind the things that he does. He didn't create these feasts just for a random uh, thing, for the, fill the calendar for the Jewish people. Oh, I know, I need to find them something to do through the year. I'll just give them these feasts. No, they, they're a purposeful feast. And we're going to see as we get on, they have a practical uh, interpretation, but they also have a prophetic interpretation. And they all point to the sovereignty and the character of God in relation to his working with his people. So as the people go back to Jerusalem, they face trial and they face trouble and they get back straight away to putting in the worship of God as God has decreed and they begin with these feasts and get into the calendar of the feast because not only does that remind them that God had elected them as a sovereign nation, but it also reminds when we get behind the feast as to what God meant by them, that he is sovereign and that everything in human history is working out according to his plan. His purposes are always advancing and the feasts point to that. That God is in control and the people needed that to go about God's work. 
And what we'll see as we expand upon this this morning is their fear was there. It was real. It was genuine. It was valid for many uh, aspects as you would look at it. But it was a fear that led to faith as they got about God's work, his way. And when they did that, they were reminded of his sovereignty, of his provision, of his glory and his beauty. So let's pick up in Ezra chapter number 3. And firstly, we want to notice the fear of the people. Verse 3. And they set the altar upon his bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. So the people were afraid. The Hebrew word that's used there for fear, it conveys terror. Overwhelming anxiety or fear. This is not just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of spiders. Anybody here afraid of spiders? Yeah? Right. You're, you could say I'm afraid of spiders. But if there was a spider in your head and you screamed, I'm afraid of spiders, that's the type of terror. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. Because a threat's nothing. But when it's there in front of you, it changes things. And and the word means terror. So we have to understand the extent of of how much they were in fear. This wasn't just a a, a subliminal uh, secondary fear. This was a very much a real uh, impactful fear in their their lives. And they were uh, afraid. What was the reason for the fear? They were afraid because of the people of those countries. Who were the people of those countries? Well, we're going to see a little bit more of them in chapter 4. We'll get introduced. Um, But... What we want to take from this this morning as, as way of application, and like I said, we'll deal who, with who those people are a little bit later on in, in Ezra chapter 4 when we get there. But we have to understand what's going on here. Simply put, application here is, the people have gone back to Jerusalem. They are going about God's work. They're trying to reestablish God's system of worship in the temple, as God had decreed, they were doing what their Lord wanted them to do as a result of the exile that he had put them through and allowed them to go through. The exile was a chastisement of that nation. And God had used it to remove idolatry from the land. And now they were going back to where God wanted them to be. They were in the right place, united, gathered as one, going to do God's work. And guess what happens? Opposition comes. Opposition comes. They began to build, they began to work, and opposition comes from all sides, from the people of all the countries around them. Now, we don't have to stretch too far from that interpretation of what went on in Ezra 3 to think about our lives today as the body of Christ. Because it's no different. We are God's elect people as the body of Christ. We're the elect body corporately and when we go to do God's work God's way we face opposition from all those countries all around we face it I think we faced it since you know maybe it's just me but since I've came here in my ministry it seems to have been one thing after another with different things and you know you know even simple things like the car parking thing and you know it's like my goodness been COVID for many ministries that have been start stop ministries have shut down never reopened 
Many people, certainly um, um, when COVID first hit, not, not so much now because I feel like we're learning to live with this now and, and you know, it seems to be milder, but that's not to take away from anybody that, that, that has lost anybody or suffered through it. But when it first came, there was a real fight or flight reaction, wasn't there, from a lot of people? And especially Christians. You know, especially Christians. And if we're honest, if we're honest with ourselves, even the strongest among us just forgot about God for a moment and just went into self-defense mode. If we're honest with ourselves, we did. And fear came in. It did. And, and it became the overriding factor. Just because this was something completely new to us. And, and I mean, the, the media didn't help. There's no doubt about it. But it was just at the start, you know, lockdowns and, you know, uh, people not being able to go to work. And, uh, you know, all these people in, 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 in life support systems and not enough hospital beds. And, and what creeps in? Fear keeps in. And, and when fear keeps in, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Now, fear is a natural thing of the fall. It's part of it. Adam and Eve were never fearful before the fall. But after, that's part of who we are today. We live with this marred nature, this sin nature within us. Even though we are dead to sin in Christ, in our natural bodies there lives a sinful man that still wants to fight and get up and still wants to get in your ear and still wants to tell you that you need to, you need to worry and you need to really be in this place where you just worry the world away. And, and we, 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 we go to that so easily. All of us. All of us. You know, raised, I, I, I understand that this pulpit is, is raised, but it's the word of God that's raised. It's not the man. I suffer from these things. But fear, it's dividing. And that's what it did within the church. It divided, didn't it? And, and even today, it's still doing it. Fear's debilitating. Stops you doing what you want to do because you're, you're, you're in a petrified state. You're in a panic state. And you can't function as you ought to because fear has come in. It's debilitating. It's depressing. Fear is depressing. But ultimately, it's deceiving. It's deceiving. Because when we realize that God is sovereign, and he says he hasn't given us a spirit of fear, we have to trust in him when all our earthly senses are pulling us in the direction where we want to curl up into a ball and just worry the world away. God is saying, no, 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 no. Come on to me. Don't be foolish when we're talking about COVID. But don't be fearful. Be fearful. And, and that's what happened. That's what happened with the people. As they come back in verse 3, they come back. They build the altar. The fear was upon them. And then it says, and they offered burnt offerings thereon to the Lord. So notice, they got about the work. It doesn't say that they weren't fearful, so that's why they did the work. It says they were fearful, but they still did the work. And that's the battle where fear and faith collide. Are we going to learn to live with that fear and work through that fear in faith and get about God's work? Or are we going to allow fear to do what it wants to do? It wants to divide us, debilitate us, 
depress us and ultimately deceive us. That we can't go about God's work because we live in a fearful world. That's not the reality of it. They got about building the altar. They got about doing God's work, even though they were fearful. One commentator puts it like this. He says, their first thought of their heart was God. And so much the more because they were really afraid of the enemies round about. But that fear they expressed, not in human measures to guard against what they dreaded, but in drawing near to God to own him and to praise him. And that's what fear should do. Not bring us to a place where we want to fight it with earthly weapons. But fear should bring us to a place where our only thought, our first thought is for the very heart of God. That we would draw near to him and we would praise him. And if you think about this, this is nothing different than what the psalmists of old said time and time again. Those verses that we love to quote. We have them on our fridges. We have books, uh, uh, notepads with them written on. Key rings, uh, pens, whatever it may be with all these great verses. But you can have all the pens in the world. You can have all the papers in the world. But if you're not applying it, Dead words. Dead words. Turn to Psalm 56, verses 3 to 4. What did David say? Psalm 56, verse 3 4. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. In God I will praise. His word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. And we could go on and we could go on. The opening scripture that we had this morning, it was in Psalm chapter number 3. And if you've been astute, and I know some of you are, you'll see that the, the opening scripture that we have, we're just going through each psalm. So we started in Psalm 1, we're now in Psalm 3. And we're just going to keep going on. But the, the scripture this morning in Psalm 3 was about that very thing that the world looks as if it's going to get on top of us, but you're the lifter up of our heads, God. And, and that just worked out that we were at this point in Israel. So God, I think, this morning is trying to tell us something, that when fear comes in and we want to put our heads down, we're to lift our heads up. We're to trust him when everything is saying, no, try and fix it yourself. Try and fight it yourself. Try and do it yourself. And, and this, you know, this could be anything that you're facing now. Anything at all. And your mind and your flesh will be telling you to do this your own way. But God says, let that fear lead you to me. Trust in me. So what is our, what's our response to fear in situations that make us fearful? What do we do? Do we run? Do we bury our heads in the sand like the ostrich? Hoping that it will all go away. Or do we realize that we need to turn to God and come back to him? Be like the psalmist. What time I'm afraid, I will trust in thee. I will praise his word. In God have I put my trust. He's a strong deliverer. He's the mighty tower. He's the one that we should run to. In times of fear. So the people of Ezra 3. They had fear. But they got on with the work. They fought through it. 
And they were faithful to what God had. And part of that faithfulness was them beginning to bring in the Levitical system of worship. So we've seen the fear of the people. Now we're going to have a look at the face of the people as the remnant get into God's work. And step by step, they begin reintroducing the face of the Lord. Look at verse 4. They kept also the feasts of tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to custom, the duty of every day required. And afterward, the continued burnt offering of both new moons and of all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated. So they get about. These are the feasts of the people and they get back to bringing this system into place. And God had given this system in Leviticus. Turn with me there. Leviticus 23. He had given this system of worship, the way to worship God, because he, the people had been delivered out of Egypt. Okay? They'd been taken out of Egypt, which is a picture of the world. And then we get into Leviticus, which is about getting Egypt out of the people. It's about getting the world out of the people. And how do you get the world out of you? You come to God and you worship him and you praise him his way and give him the preeminence. That's, that, that's how you get the stains of life off. You can't wash them off yourself. You have to allow God to do it through his word. Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. And God will do that. But we have to get back to doing things his way. In Leviticus 23, God lays out uh, the record of the feast. So let's quickly have a look at these. We don't have too much time. We will probably, uh, as the Lord wills, once we get through the book of Revelation on Sunday evenings, we'll go back into the Old Testament, look at the tabernacle, look at the feasts and the offerings, and, and see what's in there. But for now, we'll just have a cursory look over. So Leviticus 23, verse uh, 5 you have Passover, and the 14th day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. 14th day of the first month, even is the Lord's Passover. I believe the Lord absolutely was crucified on the 14th day. That is no coincidence as you look into these things. Uh, next, we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Leviticus 23, verse 6. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread bread. Uh, Leviticus 23 verse 10, we have the feast of first fruits. When you go into the land which I will give you, you shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. Uh, Verse 15, we have Pentecost in there. And you shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf and the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Then verse 24, we move. These for The first four feasts that we looked at are the spring feasts. They, they happen during springtime and the calendar. These next three feasts are autumn feasts. So we have the feasts of trumpets, verse 24, uh, speaking unto the children of Israel, saying, in the seventh month, in the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing trumpets, a holy convocation. That's the feast of trumpets. Verse 27, we have the Day of Atonement, and we should know that one well. Also, in the tenth day of the seven months, this will be a Day of Atonement. That's uh, the Day of Atonement. And then, finally, we have the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, verse 24, speak unto the... Oh, no, sorry, that's not verse 24. I've got the wrong reference. I'll be 
34, sorry. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be a feast of tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. So that's, you know, a quick cursory look. There's seven feasts that are given directly from God to the people. These are the modem. These are the appointed times that God gives to his people. That's the record of the feast. But what about the reason for the feast? Well, turn with me to Amos chapter number 3. Amos chapter 3 and verse 7. In the book of Amos chapter 3 and verse 7 we read this. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. So God declared that he would do nothing without first revealing it to his servants, the prophets. So from the Old Testament, from, from all the way through to the New, we see God's progressive revelation on display, his redemptive plan for humanity. And one of the most startling aspects of, of that revealing of that plan is in these seven feasts that you find in the book of Leviticus. There's an amazing prophetical picture that's given in these feasts. And like I said, the feasts had a, a primary application. You know, they were practical. But they also had a prophetical side to them. And, and those special days, God's appointed times, uh, they lead us through the work of redemption. They, they really just speak of, of Christ from start to finish. And, and it's an amazing prophetic uh, picture. It leads us from the cross all the way to the crown. Uh, from Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem right through it through his common millennial kingdom. Um, and it's beautiful. So again, we'll do this in depth later on on our Sunday evening sessions at some point. But the spring feasts, um, they picture the Passover, pictures the death of Christ. That's pretty obvious. The Feast of Unleavened Bread pictures the burial of Christ. The Feast of First Fruits, it pictures the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Pentecost pictures the, the giving of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church age, which really pictures judgment upon Israel. That's what that pictures. Uh, so we've got four there that are the spring feasts, and all of these have been fulfilled prophetically. We've had the death of Christ. We've had the resurrection of Christ. We've had, uh, sorry, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. We've seen the birth of the church, which was a judgment upon Israel. So those, those feasts have been fulfilled. But as I said, there were four spring feasts and three autumn feasts. But the three autumn feasts we have not yet seen fulfilled in Christ. We haven't seen it. And they point prophetically to the second coming of Christ. The Feast of Trumpets, I believe, points to the regathering of Israel. Israel. People will say it pictures the rapture of the church. The feasts of Israel are not about the church. They're not about the church. And they say, well, Pentecost, that's about the birth of the church. No, the birth of the church happened at Pentecost. But Pentecost is Joel's prophecy being fulfilled in judgment partially because Israel had rejected their Messiah. Therefore, the, the elect privilege was going to the church, which was a judgment upon Israel. We're to provoke the Jew to jealousy. But these feasts were all 
pictorial of Israel and Christ's program with Israel. So the Feast of Trumpets, I believe, points to the regathering of Israel and that will, will happen absolutely um, as they gather together as a, as a chosen people once again. The Day of Atonement points to that great day when they accept the Messiah as their king and as their Lord. And it will. Jeremiah 31, uh, Zechariah 12, uh, Romans 11, as Paul expands it, he says, Brethren, I would not have you be ignorant of the mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceit, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. There's coming a day. When Israel will be back into the plan of God and accept him for the Messiah. And then finally, the Feast of Tabernacles points to the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, the earthly kingdom, that thousand year reign. And it's in Ezra 3, the first feast that they keep is the Feast of Tabernacles pointing towards his kingdom. So let me, let me put this in here as a little bit of sanctified imagination. Maybe the people thought that the kingdom was coming. If they built that temple back into Jerusalem after all those years of exile, seeing the sovereign hand of God, they get into it and they fall and where they land, it is for the Feast of Tabernacles. And maybe they looked up and thought, the kingdom's coming now. But regardless, regardless, they get back to the feasts that God had appointed. Those four spring feasts, those three autumn feasts, prophetically four have been fulfilled for us today as we look. Three are still to come. But even as we think about that, we're pointed to Christ. And we think about Christ. And as I spoke about the spring feasts, and, and we said a yea and amen that Christ did come, that he did die, he was buried, and he did rise again. And the church was birthed, judgment to Israel though it may be. And we're privileged to be the church today and then we think about the spring feast and we're reminded of the gathering of, of Israel but also we're reminded that the return of the king to Israel where Israel will accept him as their own we as the body of Christ will be with him and we will return with him and we will see this and then we'll see the kingdom set up and we cannot help or you should not be able to help to rejoice that your Savior is returning, that your Savior is in control, that he is coming and it doesn't matter what the world says, it doesn't matter what the world does and it doesn't matter how difficult it gets out there, that when we look to these faces and we're reminded of the prophetical application, we know that our king's coming again. And that changes things, right? When you think about that, you're not afraid. You're filled with faith. You're filled with faith. And that was the point of God's appointed times. The purposeful God had a purpose in these feasts and the way that he was to be worshipped. So when the people came back, they could be reminded that God was in control. So when his church can look back all those years ago to those feasts when they were given, we can be reminded today that God is still on the throne. And that's our application as we close out this morning. Yes, the people were afraid. But the response of the people 
was to get about God's work. And as they did that, they would have been blessed by that. And as we get about God's work and get into his word, we get blessed by that. And we, we trust in God more through it all. And their fear leads us to faith. And fear, when it is used in the correct way, doesn't weaken our faith. It builds our faith so that we can be more faithful instead of fearful. So the question that I ask to you is, if we look back in Ezra and we're reminded of these feasts and we're reminded of the way God wants to be worshipped and how he did things and we, we look at the people and say, well, well done, you're doing the right thing and I'm sure you were blessed by that. And we look at it and we say, you know, God was definitely in control there. He knew what he was doing and he had them at the right time in the right place. And, and everything that had gone on there, the, the movement to allow them back into the land, it was all at the hand of God. And we look back and we say, we cannot but see a sovereign God there. But what do we do when we look into our own lives this morning? When we take a look and we look at what we're facing, and we take a look at the opposition that's coming, and the difficulties they are, and, and you know, not to be a prophet of doom, but for the believer, the, the biblical, born again, uh, founded and grounded and upon the word of God, it's going to get increasingly difficult. There's going to be more opposition, not less. But what are you going to allow? The opposition, the fear, the troubles, the trials, the distractions, whatever it may be. Are you going to allow that? Pull you away from God, which is what the enemy wants to happen. That's what he wants. You know, when people get saved, I'm sure heaven trembles. No doubt. But only for a moment or two. But when believers get serious about God, start to mean business with God, and start to serve God. Hell feels it each and every minute of each and every hour. The devil's not worried. If you get saved, he loses one. But if you're serving, he has to fight one. What are we going to do as we face fear? And we will, and we do, and we are. Are we going to allow that fear? To debility us, to divide us, to depress us, and ultimately deceive us? Or are we going to use that fear to fuel our faith that when our eyes of flesh meet our spiritual sight, we say, do you know what? I cannot trust what the world is telling me, but I know what God says. And I know God's on the throne. And I know God's coming again. And I know God is with me. Therefore, even though I am afraid, I'm going to trust him. Because that's fear that leads to fear. And that's what God will have us to do as his body today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the truth that you are indeed a sovereign God, a creator God. And as we've just briefly looked at these feasts that point us towards you, Lord Jesus, 
We are reminded that you are coming again. And Lord, as we face the world and it batters us from all sides and all directions, Lord, Lord, help us just to focus upon you. You are our rock. You are our mighty fortress. Lord, you are our shield. But Lord, so often, rather than coming to you, we run from you. And we try to fix everything ourselves. And we say to ourselves, Lord, once I've fixed all this stuff, then I'll come back to you and, and we'll do work together. But Lord, we can never fix ourselves. And anything we do to try and fix ourselves ultimately really makes things worse. But Lord, when we come to you with our troubles, our burdens, our worries, our fears, which are very real at times, Lord, we know that you're the one that can build us up and lift us up. Cleanse our very souls that we might be a people that walk in the world of uncertainty with certainty that we might be a people that others see and and cannot understand how we can be calm and how we can have a smile on our face even though we're going through difficult days. Lord, then we can be a people that has the peace of God that passes all understanding. But Lord, will you help us, each and every one of us, this morning and those listening at home. Lord, as we face fearful times, may we allow that fear to lead us to faith, that we might lay it all before you and rejoice in our sovereign, redeeming God. In Jesus' name, amen.